again say thanks to George for putting that together and for the kids in taking part in that, just sharing their hearts, how much they appreciate their moms this morning and uh, continue that. Don't let it stop now. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25 and I've entitled this The Gospel and the Secular Mind. How do we present the gospel to someone who really has no idea of what we believe and why we believe what we do? But at the end of Acts chapter 24, it says, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Paul was left there for two years after, to be honest, going through this trial and being declared innocent of any charges, really, for the most part. And Felix, just for political expediency, left him there in that prison. Um, He was swayed by popular opinion over principle. He was playing politics. Kind of sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? It's easier to go with public opinion and what is popular and what we think that people want to hear rather than what is really right. And that's what was going on here. But I think we can see that God's in this. We see God's hand, and I spoke on this last week. Because he's in prison, he's protected against the death threats of the Jews who are seeking his life. So he's, he's kept there securely for two years. But he also has time during those two years to rest and to get some replenishment after his three missionary journeys that he had just been on. We see, we saw last week that there was some freedom granted him while he was in prison and his friends could come and go and minister to his needs. So I think God is providing some rest and replenishment for Paul. But I think there's another piece that often gets left out here and we know from history and we get this indication that Luke, his traveling companion, took this two-year period of time and traveled. And it was most likely during this time, this two-year period, that Luke interviewed people where Luke went out and did some research and for his gospel and for the book of Acts. And we, many Bible scholars believe that it was during this time where he traveled down and actually spoke with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and was able to, from her own account, learn about the early life of Jesus and include it in his gospel. And we have that in the book of Luke. It was probably during this time where he spoke to James and some of the other uh, church leaders and learned about what was going on in the early church when it was first starting, before he met Paul, before he traveled with Paul. So this was an opportunity for Luke to learn about Jesus, to learn about the the church and the history. What happened to Felix and Drusilla? I left off last week with them hearing from Paul day after day, and they were curious, so what happened to them? Well, we know from history that Felix was replaced a few years later by Nero because of a complaint of the Jews against him. And he's kind of lost in the annals of history, to be honest. There's really not much said about him after that. For Drusilla, we know from history that she died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Her and her son were there close, and when the volcano erupted, they were one, two of many that perished in that incredibly unfortunate event. So unfortunately, they heard the gospel, but we don't know, and chances are they didn't respond to it. 
next we have enter the next person in the story of Paul. The next person is Festus. We're going to see him here in chapter 25. Now, when I hear the word Festus, this is the person that comes to my mind as a kid growing up, and many of you recognize him on the TV show Gunsmoke back in the 60s, uh, watching that show. This is a gentleman named Ken Curtis who played the part Festus. He was the sidekick to Matt Dillon, the, the sheriff there, and kind of a lovable character, a little bit on the goofy side, as you can see here. Um, that's not the Festus that we're talking about today. The Festus in this story, his real name is Portius Festus. Unlike Felix, who was a former slave who then rose to prominence, Festus actually was born into wealth. He was born into the Roman nobility. He was known to history as a good man and as a good governor, as opposed to Felix, who was not liked by the Jewish people and not respected. Little really is known of him because once he took office, he was dead two years later. So there was a very short period of time really to do anything. And so we have a very small window into the life of Festus. And his story in relationship to Paul is presented here in chapter 25. But I think what we see with Festus is the picture of the, the secular mind, again, and what, when people present the gospel to someone who is in secular mind, what does it sound like? What does it, what does it come across as? So let's take a look at this story. In the first five verses of chapter 25, we have an assassination plotted. It says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if this man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him up there in Caesarea. It's interesting, it says after three days when he took office, he immediately went down to Jerusalem and he met with the Jewish leaders. Very different from Festus. He is not, or Felix, excuse me, he's not a procrastinator. Um, he's he's going to get right down to business immediately. He's going to go to the most important city in his province in Jerusalem and he's going to meet with the most important people who can help him maintain this peace that he is going to be in charge of. And it's interesting that Paul is still on the mind of the Jewish leaders after two years. They haven't forgotten him up there in prison in Caesarea. He's very much on their mind, and they want to get at him. And they request Festus, would you please allow him to come down here to Jerusalem? We want to put him on trial and make sure that it's a fair trial. And we know very well that's not the case. The reality is that a Roman court could sit in either Jerusalem or Caesarea. It was really up to Festus to make this call. But really what was going on, and Luke gives us a little insight here. He says what was really going on was a desire to, to kill Paul in route, in coming down from Caesarea to Jerusalem. It's interesting the growth and corruption that has happened in the story. In chapter 23, it was 40 men who are trying to assassinate Paul. And they came with this plot 
they came to the Jewish leaders and let them know of their plot. That was chapter 23. Now we have the Jewish leaders themselves trying to kill Paul and putting together a plot to take his life. But Festus refuses their request. We don't know if he knew of their plot or not. We really don't. But he really did it for more pragmatic reasons. He's like, you know what? If I'm going to go to all this effort, you need to come to me, not vice versa. I'm not going to go back to Caesarea, put all this together, and then come back down. Forget about it. You guys, if you have a real case, come up, come up north, bring your case up to me in Caesarea, and put, your, put forth your case in a formal manner. So he kind of sees through it a little bit and what's going on. They're going to present their accusations in verses 6 through 11. Here's what it says. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court, ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense, and here it is. It's as simple as this in verse 8. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. There it is. That's Paul's case. End of discussion. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul, I'm, here's a question. It's not a command. I'm not going to command you here, but here's an option. What do you think? Paul answered, I am now standard, standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. In verse 7, they, it, Luke says they brought many serious charges. They stood around him. They brought all these charges against him. But what we see, there's no evidence, there's no eyewitnesses, there's no real case. It's the same story as we saw last week when he appeared before Felix. And in verse 8, Paul's going to respond to the same three charges that we saw with Tertullus, the lawyer, last week. Paul says, I have done nothing wrong against the law. I am not, they had accused him of being part of this sect of the Nazarenes. Nothing against the law there. I have done nothing to bring dishonor to the temple, again. And I have done nothing against Caesar. I am not this troublemaker that they want to make me out to be. I'm not trying to raise up and cause riots here in the streets. And the Jewish leaders know, knew that full well. And what they were attempting to do again is to kind of put a little political twist into it and to make it sound like Paul's out to get the Romans, and he's really not. In fact, in this chapter, his loyalty to Caesar comes out because it's eight times the name Caesar comes up in this chapter. Paul is innocent, yet these Jews continually bring these accusations against him. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are righteous in God's sight. But there's someone who wants to bring accusations against you and me. And the name of that person is Satan himself. We know that because it says in Scripture it's true. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. This is what it says about Satan. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. What a beautiful scene. God is in control. 
It's his power. But look what Satan is doing. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. There's a future time where Satan is going to be dealt with, but between now and then, he, one of his main jobs, be, besides lying, is bringing accusations against you and I. As believers, we have an accuser, but we also have a defense, and that defense has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 34, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Question mark. No one, period. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, and I would say more than that, he's at the right hand of God. He ascended. He's also interceding for us. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I came across this the other day in the sense of we're thinking of Mother's Day and for our sisters in Christ, our wives, mothers, our sisters in Christ, there is no condemnation. And I just want to read this to you and I'm going to put on my glasses to do this. Mothers and women of CBC, even though you may feel you are, you are not condemned by your messy home. You are not condemned by your lack of desire to homeschool. You are not condemned by your personal sins. You are not condemned by the difficulty of caring for a child with special needs. You are not condemned by the knowledge of how easy it is for you to love one child maybe more than another. You are not condemned by your miscarriage or miscarriages. You are not condemned by not having children or having too many children. You are not condemned because you have no desire to adopt. You are not condemned even though you feel it when you read of another's perfect parenting moment on Facebook. You are not condemned by your inability to cook. You are not condemned because your kids are not normal. You are not condemned because you are divorced, widowed, or unmarried and doing it all alone. You are not condemned by your desire to be alone, away from the kids for a time, every single day. You are not condemned by your body, which might not be what it once was. You are not condemned by your repeated failures as a mother or as a wife. You are not condemned by your rebellious children. You are not condemned by the frustration of having to scrape mac and cheese off the kitchen floor again. You are not condemned by not being able to throw the birthday party of the year for your kids. You are not condemned for not feeding your kids homemade meals whose ingredients were recently purchased at Whole Foods. You are not condemned by your need for a vacation. You are not condemned for not living up to the standards of your mother or your mother-in-law. You are not condemned by the stares of those who don't have kids when yours erupt into volcanic screams in public places. Mothers, wives, sisters in Christ, even though you may feel condemned, if you are in Christ, you are not condemned. This is the real reality. Paul is going to continue to be accused. He's going to, there's going to be condemnation by people 
But Paul knows full well that in Christ he is not condemned, and he stands in that. And we can do that as believers in Christ today. In verse 9, again, Festus is giving in again to the political pressure here, and he puts up this, attempting to do the Jews a favor. He asks Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem, Paul, and stand trial before me in front of these Jewish people? And Paul has had enough, and he finally says, you know what, it's time to raise the bar. It's time to move it out of this arena into a higher arena, and he refuses to take the trial and go down to Jerusalem. He was not afraid to face the lions. He says, I do not refuse to die, Paul says. If I've done something wrong, I'll stand trial. I'll take the heat. I'll do the time. He was not afraid to face the lions, but he also wasn't willing to put his head into the mouth of the lions for no reason, if he could avoid it. So in verses 11 and 12, here's what he says. He says, if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, and he knows they're not, no one has a right to hand me over to them, period. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. This appeal to Caesar is the right of every Roman citizen, which Paul was. It's called the provocation. That was the name given it. It's the idea of taking your case to the Supreme Court of the Roman Empire. And in doing this, what he's done basically is he's done an end around Festus. He's taken the case above Festus. He's doing really Festus a huge favor at this point. And you can almost hear Festus' sigh of relief going, I can be done with this. I can let this go. It's out of my hands. I don't have to deal with this issue any longer. It's going to the big guy above me. It's going to Caesar at this point. Now, who was, Paul appearing, who was Paul appealing to at this point? It's Nero. Now, this time in history, for really for the first five years of Nero's reign, he was known as a good ruler. He was not the enemy of Christians that we come to know in history. He had Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, as his um, assistant, giving him uh, good advice and helping him to deal with things fairly and justly. He was regarded as wise and just. So Paul, in making this appeal to Nero, it was a good call. He was going to get a good trial at this point. Why does Paul appeal? A couple reasons have been put out there. One is an apologetic reason to argue that Christianity be recognized by Rome. So in taking this case to Rome in the heart and Caesar himself, he could, in a sense, give validity to the Christian faith. But I think the, the real reason why Paul wanted to go there and the real reason he wanted to appear before Caesar was evangelism. Jesus had said to him in Acts 23, 11, you must testify about me in Rome. Jesus himself had appeared to Peter and stated that reason. So Paul knew that there was more going on here he would have the opportunity to present the gospel in the city of Rome and to take the gospel even further out from Jerusalem. Because of this appeal, two things happen. He is required to be kept in prison 
for a period of time. And the second thing that's going to happen is Festus now will have to put together a written report of the case and send it with Paul on his journey up to Rome. So Paul now will have an opportunity to appear before Caesar on the state's dime. Uh, it will cost Paul nothing. He gets a free trip to Rome. Isn't that exciting? And he will get to appear before Caesar. But on the burden now on Festus is not the trial of Paul, but this report that he's got to write. And he's got to come up with something good as it goes to Caesar. So fortunately for him, Agrippa appears on the scene, verses 13 to 27. I just want to read the rest of this chapter. Not going to talk about King Agrippa. That's the next couple weeks. Uh, Josh Cook is going to be pre- presenting Paul's defense before Agrippa. It's a beautiful uh, presentation of the gospel and a beautiful story of how Paul defends himself before King Agrippa. But here's the introduction to him. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here who Felix left as a prisoner. You get the sense of, thanks a lot, Felix. I inherited this, basically, from my predecessor. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them, it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and they've had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day, ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. I thought this was something serious, is what he was saying, basically. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. I didn't understand all this. Would he be willing to go down there? But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. I had to send him to Rome, in essence. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write in this report. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So, This case has been dismissed really from the jurisdiction of Festus. It's going up above him. Paul, however, is going to be subjected to one more hearing, and we're going to hear about that in the next couple weeks before King Agrippa. The fifth and final trial of Paul. He was hoping, I really believe that 
Festus was hoping that Agrippa could help him write, find something to put into this report. Agrippa, I don't get it. What's going on with these Jewish people? What is, what is the base of their real charge? What is really going on? And in verse 26 and 27, he says, I really have nothing definitive to write in this report. <laughs> I, and this is gonna look foolish, sending this up to the higher court to Caesar himself. And so that was the reason why he brought Agrippa in, and Agrippa will have the opportunity to hear but what was really, really going on? And I think he nails it in verse 19. He knows it's not a political issue, it's a very much a religious, religious Jewish issue. Verse 19, it's about this guy named Jesus whom Paul claims he's risen from the dead. I don't get it, I don't know what's going on here, but that's the real issue that seems to be sticking in the craw of these Jewish leaders. Now I'm gonna jump into chapter 26 for a couple verses to show you what happens with this issue as it gets brought before King Agrippa. It says just in the middle of his defense before King Agrippa, Festus is listening, okay, but here's what he says. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. Paul had been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and it's reasonable. Paul, you're a learned man, but you're speaking like a crazy person right now. You know, there's this thin line between being brilliant and being crazy, right? Paul, guess what? You've crossed over the line from brilliance into the crazy side of life. There's something wrong here. Now, you don't shout at someone you really think is crazy. You probably would go over to them and pat them on the shoulder and feel sorry for them. I'm really sorry you feel this way. Or maybe you would look over, he would look over at King Agrippa and kind of wink and go, okay, uh, moving right along. But he's frustrated about this case and this resurrection that keeps getting brought up. You would never send a lunatic to face Caesar either. So he knows that something is going on. He's really got this dilemma. He either needs to take seriously Paul's statement about the resurrection or he needs to just deny it and let it go. And so he's really caught in the situation. With Felix, in last week it was, it's not convenient. We heard Felix say that. It's not convenient at this time to hear the story about Jesus. With Festus, it's just not believable. It's not rational, Paul. That's the final verdict of a secular mind. Now, this morning, as we talk about the resurrection, we just celebrated it in Easter, and we, it is the core, it is the foundation, it is everything for us as Christians. But have you ever thought about the things that we believe and how they sound to people outside of our belief system? to someone who has no concept of God, no concept of the Christian faith, and how these things sound. Things like God becoming man. God sending his son to die on a cross to cover my sins. What? Christ returning to life from the dead and ascending to heaven. Wow, okay. 
Christ returning someday to make everything right. The resurrection and the judgment of the just and the unjust. We talked about that last week. Heaven and hell in today's culture. Have you ever thought sometimes about as Christians, we embrace these things. We know they're true. We don't see any problem with them. But in the secular thinking, in the secular mind, how do those come across? Why do we believe them? Well, I would say this. We believe them because, number one, it started with a conviction of the Holy Spirit on our lives. God, at some point, moved in our hearts to move his direction. But beyond that, we have the trustworthy witness of family, friends, maybe close associates at work. We also have the truth that we know in the Word of God, that we believe is the Word of God, and we reach out to it, and we trust it. And so all of these things are believable to us. But again, keep in mind, how do we present the gospel to the secular mind? I want to show this PowerPoint. It's called Changing Our Approach. This happened a while back, but probably in the 50s and 60s and probably 70s, you could argue, and I even remember in being raised as a kid, there was a time where absolute truth was accepted, where people believed in absolute truth. Somewhere along the way, that got tossed, and truth became kind of this relative thing that everybody just kind of decides on their own or makes up on their own. We went from a modern approach to the postmodern approach. Those are the names that were given to it. So we have, in, with the moderns, it was you present your case. You present truth. The person believes it. You've presented a good case. It makes sense. They believe it. They accept it. Praxis is they put it into their life. They live it out. It becomes part of who they are, how they live. So this is true, this is true, then you must believe it. Evidence that demands a verdict, right? There's a little bit of that. If you believe it now, you live it out. And that that made sense, and it still makes sense to me, being an older generation guy, but things have changed a little bit. This, I think, fits more with the postmodern. With them, it's life, and does it make sense then I might believe it. Then the next step, I might accept it to be true. So, for someone looking on, the Christian life makes sense. It's livable. If it's livable, then it's also believable. And if it's believable, then it's true. It's a change in the way that we're thinking. And I think there needs to be a change maybe in the way we approach people with the truth of the gospel. The gospel stays the same. But our approach might need to change a little bit. Jesus even said this in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. You're a town built on a hill which can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Then glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you see the difference there is? You let your light shine. You see, let your life speak. 
so that people see your life and go, that works. Then, I can believe that because I've seen it in action. Then, I'll accept the truth of who God is and my need of a Savior. That's the way it needs to be in today's world. I think there's three tools There's more than three, but there's three that I'll highlight today that we can use to bring the gospel to the secular mind. The first one is authenticity. The question is no longer, is it true? That's not where it starts. The question now is, is it real? Does it work in everyday life? That's the bigger question. Does our talk match our walk? The gospel is shared in the context of shared lives and trusted friendships. They want to see... Am I for real first? Then is my message for real in that order? If they look at my life and see hypocrisy, see me saying this but yet living this, guess what? They're not going to listen to my message. But if they see my life here and if they see me living out what I say, then they are more apt to listen to what I have to say. That's simply the way it is. The way we live is just as important or more than what we say. The second thing is hospitality. In today's culture, hospitality is an incredible tool that can be used for the sake of the gospel. It provides a couple of things. Number one, a space where gospel conversations can happen. Here's the way it works in our culture. Somewhere along the line, there the sacred and secular divide happened where the things that are sacred are over here and the things that are the everyday secular things are over here and the two are a separate deal. So in our conversations around the table or at work, you can't talk about a couple of things. Number one, politics, although people do, (laughs) but that can be a dicey thing right in the public sphere the other thing is religion don't bring your religion to work you know that's off limits we can't talk about it you can talk about a lot of things but that's off the table for now okay i really believe that hospitality provides a place where those barriers begin to break down where you can begin to talk to people and ask questions and and talk about the gospel it goes from coffee to dinner, to the gospel. It's kind of that progression. Maybe just a cup of coffee and I'm talking about my family. I'm talking about my interests. I'm talking about my hobbies. Then the next step is a dinner where we're sitting down and we're beginning to share things that are really important. We're going a little deeper. There's trust being built. Then the platform is there for me to share the gospel. I think also with hospitality, it's a place where my non-Christian friends can meet my Christian friends. I believe one of the most powerful tools in evangelism is in introducing my unsaved friends to my Christian friends. And in doing that, what was once unbelievable becomes more believable, more plausible. It's one thing to hear me say, I believe in Jesus. It's one thing to hear me say, You know, you need to be saved from your sins. It's a whole other thing to have a group of people, a community, saying that. And so the idea of we need our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends. 
How's that going to happen? It's probably going to happen with hospitality, inviting them to be a part of events, inviting them to dinner, things like that. Is it livable? Is it believable? Is it true? It kind of goes in that order. The third tool, and I talked about this a little bit last week, and I know Josh is going to talk about it next week, is our personal testimony. It's our story of how we came to know Jesus Christ. That is a powerful testimony. Ravi Zacharias, who is one of the great Christian apologists, says they can't argue against a story. One of the great things about a testimony is they can't say it's not true. They can say, okay, whatever, that's fine for you. But they can't say that's not true because it's your story. It's the story of what God has done in your life, how you came to faith, and what he's done since. And in this book, and I lost my place in this book. Oh, here it is. Hang on a second. Ravi Zacharias, continuing on that, he says, they can't argue against the story. For example, when people ask me, what about people in countries who haven't heard about Jesus? Good question. That's one of the things that's always put up there as an argument against, you know, would Jesus, is Jesus fair in requiring people to come to faith? Here's what he says. I tell them the story of my friend who grew up in a Middle Eastern country that was closed to Christianity and the gospel. I tell them how my friend received a dream about Jesus, and that's how my friend came to believe, love, and worship Jesus. I say, I'm not saying that God reveals himself in a dream to everybody, but what I am saying is that God finds ways to reveal himself to people, and I believe that he finds ways especially to those people in countries where they can't have Christian churches or the Bible. We just don't know, but what we do know is that God has revealed himself clearly to us. Because we do have the Bible, we have heard about Jesus. They may not be fully convinced, but it does tend to address the objection in a way that satisfies them. It's a story. I think of it this way with evangelism. First step is we listen to their story. Who are they? What is their faith, if any? How did they come to that conclusion? What's going on in their life? What's their story? Step one. Step two, share our story. This is what happened in my life. This is how God changed me. This is the benefits of the gospel in my life. Now in that story, I think it's important to let people know, you know what? When I came to Christ, my life didn't become perfect. The reality is this. Life still is a struggle at times. There's still things that I don't get right. There's still times where I fall on my face. I am not perfect. My family's not perfect. My job is not perfect. But I have Christ in my life. And here's how that's helped me in the life here. And I believe that's one of the powerful things about our story. Their story, our story his story, the story of Jesus Christ and the gospel. I think it needs to go in that order to benefit and to really get an opening ear of people as they listen. Our job in evangelism, and I said this and I'll continue to say this, it's not about closing the door on the deal, okay, when we present it to people. Statistics say that most people that come to Christ heard the gospel on the average of six times before they responded 
to the gospel. Now, it may be way more times, and they may still not respond to the gospel. But that's not our part. We can't change hearts. We can't force people into a decision. We simply share the story of Christ and what he's done for us. We share our story and our personal testimony, and we trust Christ to do the work in their heart. We don't have any evidence that Felix Festus responded to the gospel, none. And this is Paul, again, sharing, I mean, the best evangelist, maybe of all time, sharing the gospel. So let's be about scattering the seeds of truth and living lives that glorify God that people are watching. And I think in this epidemic period, people are watching us maybe even closer than they have before. How are we responding to this situation around us? The way we live our lives has a huge impact on the response of people to our testimony. And I want to close with this one verse, 2 Timothy 1, 7. And I, the King James Version is, I think it gives the words that I think are better, to be honest, but it's, here's what it says. God has not given us the spirit of fear, period. But what he has given us is power, love, sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We do not need to fear. We know who's in control. It's like as we watch everything that's going on, we see what's going on around us, we can hear God's voice saying to us, I got this. Trust me, this is not a big deal to me. I knew about this before it happened. You can trust me here. You don't have to panic You don't have to panic when you read stuff on the internet about what's going on out there and fear that. Trust me. But here's what I have given you during this time. I've given you power. That's the story of Acts, isn't it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Why do we have power? Only because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. You have that power now to speak the truth of the gospel in the middle of the mess in spite of what's going on. Love, because he loves people so much that he gave his only son, we're compelled by that same love for others. We are motivated. We just see how much God loves people, and so we reach out in love for people. And the last one, the sound mind. You know, I can live life today and not panic and not fear and not get angry and not get frustrated and be patient because I have a sound mind knowing full well what's going on. I can see it in the word of God. I can step back and see the bigger picture of what's going on. I can see it from his perspective, not mine. So I wanna encourage you that we don't have to fear because God has given us power. He's given us that motivation of love for others and he's given us a sound mind to move forward in the incredible circumstances that we face today. God bless all of you. Amen.